Hi, I'm Stephanie Niles, president of NACAC. Thanks for listening to College Admissions Decoded, our podcast for counseling and admissions professionals. We are an education association of more than 15,000 in the U.S. and abroad. Our members support students and families from across the country and around the world through the college admission process. We offer professional support to our members, but the public is welcome to attend one of over 90 NACAC college fairs, including some in the performing and visual arts and the STEM fields. If you'd like to learn more, please visit NACACnet.org. Hello, and welcome to College Admissions Decoded, an occasional podcast from NACAC, the National Association for College Admission Counseling. I'm Stephanie Niles, Vice President for Enrollment and Communications at Ohio Wesleyan University, and also the President of NACAC. We are an education association of more than 15,000 college admission professionals at both secondary and post-secondary schools. We support students and families from across the country and around the world through the college admission process. In March, the U.S. Department of Justice announced indictments against dozens of wealthy parents, including some celebrities, for their role in a bribing and cheating scandal officials called Operation Varsity Blues. The indictments sparked, and continue to spark, outrage and concern. What role does wealth and privilege play in the admission process? What can institutions do to reassure the public that the process is fair, that bribery and other illegal activities aren't rampant on college campuses? Joining me today are two friends who are also members of NACAC. Angel Perez, Vice President for Enrollment and Student Success at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. It's good to have you here, Angel. Excited to be here. And Jim Rollins, Assistant Vice President for Student Services and Enrollment Management and Director of Admissions at the University of Oregon in Eugene. Thanks for joining us, Jim. Thrilled to be here. Moderating our discussion is Juleka Lantigua-Williams, a veteran journalist with more than 20 years of experience in print and digital audio and film. Juleka, I'll turn this over to you. Thanks, Stephanie. It's really good to be here for this important conversation. I sense that there's going to be two parallel discussions. One is internal for the pros, people in the know who shape these policies. And the other one is public facing, which is how do we address some of the lingering and new questions that this has brought about? So, Jim, what is something that you and your team are now wrestling with or thinking about in light of what has happened? I think one of the main things we've worried about is really not so much the story itself or improprieties it may represent. Our bigger concern has been the many more students out there we serve who aren't students from families of means. And we don't want little distractions like this to get in the way of them feeling like we're all there for them. We're supporting them and their work. We want students out there who don't have wealthy families or didn't go to the right schools and all this kind of stuff to know that this doesn't indicate anything's wrong for them. And we want them to be just as positive and optimistic about their possibilities as ever. Right. So business as usual, because this is really a distraction in the grand scheme of things. Correct. I wouldn't say it doesn't matter, but a, a distraction in the sense that it shouldn't take away from the other things that need to keep happening. Okay. Stephanie, how has your membership reacted or what have been some of the threads that have surfaced? I think the reactions have been really diverse. When I look at what people have said in social media and other professionals have commented in the press, it's been 
a range of sort of personal reaction to what they've read, what they've seen, how this has grown to be such a, a phenomenon almost in in the public news. One of the questions that I know I have been asked over and over again is, were you surprised? Were others in your profession surprised? You know, was this shocking? And what commonly has been my answer was, I personally, yes, was surprised and shocked. I know that what one might say is that people will do anything for their children, but this is taking it really a step beyond, I believe, what most of us have seen. I have broke the law. Right. I haven't seen illegal activity. Families have taken, parents have taken in order to secure a place in a single institution where they believed that all future success of their child might hinge on that student having the opportunity to attend. I think we as professionals know that there's so many opportunities at institutions that can be considered a wonderful fit for students. And again, the combination of the illegal activity and the intense focus really took this so far beyond anything that I know I've seen. Okay. So, Angel, how do you get back to admissions as usual after something like this? Yeah. I mean, I think I agree with Jim and Stephanie. The one thing I want to start with is I think there was a deep sense of sadness when this happened for particularly a lot of our team members because it takes away from the great work that actually is happening on both sides. We call it both sides of the fence, college counseling and college admissions. And so we just felt this deep sense of sadness like the media is focused on this profession and blows it out of proportion like there is this massive rampant issue going on in American higher education. We have to remember that over 90 percent of colleges and universities in America actually admit the majority of their students. And so I don't believe that this is a rampant issue. But of course, it was a sexy story. There were Hollywood stars involved. (laughs) Now, having said all of that, I do think what is good about it is that it allows us to do some self-reflection at our own institutions and think about, is there anything about our process we really need to think about or change? Do we have enough measures in place to make sure that um, the system is as quote-unquote fair? I do not believe it is a fair system, but that at least every student who applies has a fair opportunity. So how do we do that? I think one of the things that makes this complicated, as the news started to proliferate over the first few days, you know, there were so many layers to this, right? I mean, it was students whose test scores were falsified um, through testing agencies and individuals being given access to take those tests. It was athletics. Then there became issues around donors and legacy students. And the layers kept, I think, being peeled back as this was further explored. And so our members were really reacting in so many ways to those different layers and how they would affect them. So you know, to Jim's point about the easy button, there is no easy button in this situation because there are so many layers. There isn't one simple fix because there are so many challenges that this has now uncovered. So how do you take back the message? What concrete steps has your organization suggested? What have some of the institutions that you're aware of implemented strategically? What do you guys do? 
I would go back to the message that this was the exception, not the rule, and that the majority of institutions of higher education in America have an ethical admissions process where students who do really hard work are all reviewed, and reviewed, by the way, in the context of their personal histories and backgrounds and opportunities. And I think we take a lot of pride in that, and we take a lot of pride in training our staff members to be able to to look for that. But I will say that what this represents, remember that Colleges and universities do not operate in silos. We represent what is happening in America right now. America is struggling with privilege and opportunity, who gets access. And so we are having that conversation in our own institutions of higher education. And this particular scandal focuses on the quote-unquote elite sector. And that is a question that institutions are grappling with. Who belongs here? Also, how has American society changed over time? And do our demographics reflect American society on our college campuses. One of the things I grapple with a lot is this question of should we be talking about it as the exception versus the rule or not even dignify it by talking about it as an exception. I'm almost at the point sometimes when we speak with families where I wonder how many of them really are dwelling on this if they're not from those kinds of settings themselves. And if we really just use it as a chance to say, now that I've got your attention, we're going to tell you how admissions works and just tell that story we've always been telling anyway, knowing people may be listening with different ears or paying more attention or taking more notes now. Uh, There's so much we're doing that's about balancing out the privilege, making sure the access is there. It's what we were doing the whole time. And so just more viewership for the topic, if nothing else, is potentially a good thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's a great time for us to turn around and tell those stories about all the things we look for to try to give a student an opportunity. All right, so let's do that for two minutes right now. Let's demystify this mysterious, shrouded process of admissions. How do I get my kid in to the best school that is a good fit for her? Well, I think that's really key, right? It's the best school that's a good fit for her. And so that's a pretty intensive process that families should start engaging in as soon as that child is ready in their high school career to begin really thinking about, what do I want? Where do I want to be? What's important to me? What's going to make me happy? Where am I going to thrive? What are the opportunities that I want in front of me? Does it matter where what part of the country I'm living in? There's all sorts of questions that every student and their family need to ask themselves, including about, about money. What are the resources available to me as a student applying to this school? What family resources do I have to bring to this experience? There's so many questions that families need to answer, but I think the key goes back to what you said. It's, it's about fit. It's not about the name brand. It's about finding an institution where one can be successful, where you will grow and develop and become intellectually curious, and you will take the steps needed to become a productive, thriving citizen and professional upon graduation. Okay, but that really sounds idealistic to me, almost like there's some... Act- sort of academic philosophical utopia, that's not the world that most of us live in. So, Angel, when you sit with families who maybe don't make the cut, how do you have the conversation about this is not a good fit? Your child is talented and hardworking and shows great potential. How do you have that conversation? Well, I do have that conversation often, but the challenge is that this particular conversation focuses on the most highly selective institutions in America, right? And so what's difficult, someone sitting in my role, and I'm only speaking for, you know, my sector and highly selective colleges, that when you look at the math and you look at how many people apply versus how many seats we have, that 
you could do everything right as a student. You could be the most talented, but there are still not enough spaces. So my advice to families as they begin this process is you should have 10 first choices. And the students who do this really well actually have 10 first choices. They say there are 10 colleges out there, and I'm making up 10 as, as, a, as a nice number, it could be seven, but that students who put all their eggs in this highly selective basket are bound to be disappointed because when you look at Stanford's admit rate, for example, I think it was four or five percent. I mean, the opportunity there probably is pretty slim to none. But if you say, like Stephanie was saying, you know, here are 10 schools that I think are amazing and I would be happy. And those 10 schools, by the way, should represent a variety of admit rates, a variety of financial opportunities as well, because a big part of this conversation now is not only where do I fit, where can I afford? And so I think diversifying your actual list is really, really important. So that brings up a question, though, of equality because and access. Because I remember when I was applying many, many years ago that we were so poor I needed to get admissions vouchers so that my cost of admission of applying was like $50, but we couldn't do that. I think one of the great things about NACAC is that it is meant to be, and if I can pick on this metaphor of a fence, I never like to say fence. I like to say two sides of the aisle because there isn't a barrier between the high school and the college side. And when we're communicating well with each other, they know here's how this school does fee waivers or here's what you can ask for. And whether it's about applying to those number of schools or getting a waiver for taking or sending your scores from the ACT or the SAT, uh, there's a good bit of that that goes on out there. I think about one in eight of our applicants gets a fee waiver based on need. And that's a number that we look at. We're like, is that where it should be? Could it, should it be higher? We think of anything, there's bound to be students out there that even once they hear, you can apply for a fee waiver. Whether there should be or not, there is a stigma. And students don't want to be the ones asking for that or they're afraid they'll be looked at differently the minute they ask for that. And so we've got to be out there in the schools, and especially close to home, we can do this more. We can't visit every high school in the country. And we also don't want to walk into a high school, say my staff in, I don't know, Portland, Oregon, and claim we know how every other school in the country will deal with fee waiver requests. But just talking about it demystifies it, if nothing else. Letting them know it's good, it's okay, it's there, and it's just part of the path. And if you need it, we're here for you. Yeah, I, I would take that one step further and say, you know, higher education has a responsibility to make this easier. So at my institution, we remove the application fee for first-generation low-income students. All they have to do is check a box. And the reason why we did that is because we know there's a level of shame that comes with asking, and also that a lot of kids just don't know to ask. Um, and so we decided, let's just, you know, remove that process. And also, one of the fears I think people have is that people would just check the box regardless because they would get a free application. We have seen none of that. The students who actually check the box really do need the assistance. So making it easier, I think, is a way that higher education can move the needle. So how has that impacted the pool of candidates? It's a higher number of first-generation low-income students, and, and we've enrolled the highest number. I wouldn't say it's because of that. We do a lot of different kinds of things, but it's little steps like that that you can take to begin to remove obstacles and barriers and also change the perception, I think, particularly at certain colleges, low-income first-gen students might feel like they don't belong there. Mm -hmm. But to see this box that opens up in the application and says, if you are first-gen and low-income, you actually, you don't have to submit an application fee, that sends a subliminal message of belonging. 
I completely agree. Stephanie? Jim mentioned the role that NACAC can play in being supportive in this process, and I think that's partly why we're here today. NACAC's really trying to listen to its members and to determine what is the role it should play. How can we be most helpful and supportive across all of our members? Our members are directly working with students and families, so we need to provide them with the resources necessary, the tools necessary to help them navigate this and the other challenges. We are really actively thinking about and trying to listen to our members about these concerns that they're facing in light of Varsity Blues and what should be those new sources, those new resources that can help us all best help families and best help students through this process. What do you need to tell me as the parent, as the child, as the aunt who went to the school and really wants her nephew to get into that school. What do you need to tell me? What do I need to hear that I'm not hearing you say to me? I think it goes back in some ways to that utopian situation that I created, but that's the message that I really hope to impart to families, that there are lots of options, that there isn't the holy grail. There isn't just one small set of institutions where students can thrive and be mm-hmm. successful. And and there's so many examples of outcomes and achievements of graduates from institutions of of all types. And I think that it's it's some, even those of us, uh, those who work for highly selective institutions, public and private, need to convey that message to all of our constituents, all of the students who are college bound. There's actually a lot of research out there that shows that it's not about where you go to college, it's about what you do with the resources you have when you get there, right? And so I think the more we can do a better job in higher education, as well as associations like NACAC and others, to help people actually see that, because oftentimes the story are always told, if you go to the Ivy League or this elite college over here, you can become a CEO. But no one's talking about, for example, Little Albion College in Michigan, where the CEO of American Airlines graduated from, right? And so there are thousands and thousands of examples like that. And we need to do a better job informing the public. One of my favorite books that I read recently is um, Robot Proof by Joseph Ayun, who is the president of Northeastern University. And he talks about up to 50% of the jobs that this generation of young people will have do not exist yet. So the challenge that those of us who work in higher education have is how do you train a generation of young people for jobs that don't exist, right? And so we have doubled down on the transferable skills, right? The critical thinking, the analytical data, the writing, the communication, the problem solving, because those are the skills that we believe will carry you through all the different kinds of careers that you will have. But this is one of the things that I think we're really trying to work on, again, is how do we communicate that to the public to help them understand that higher education is still the best way for you to achieve these skills, because at our price point as well, all of us, regardless of whether you're public or private, we're expensive. And so I understand that the public is now also worried about whether the investment is worth it, and we need to do a better job of communicating why. Even at a campus like ours, we got all these great professional majors and everything. We'll point out to them, your major is not even half of your coursework you'll do with us. And it's about that broad base that'll serve you whatever you go into next. I had a mother approach me at a reception a couple of years ago who was just distraught because her daughter wanted to be a theater major and she could not see a future career path for her majoring in theater. I said, you know, I actually was a theater major when I started (laughs) college myself. And while I then became an English major, I 
actually utilize the skills from both of those majors every day. I am constantly speaking in front of people. I'm having to read my audience. I'm having to understand the way in which I'm communicating and is it effective? And then, of course, moving into the written word and, and the, that type of communication as well through the English major. But I hope that I was able to allow her to see that it's not necessarily the major. It's the skills you're developing and how you deploy them in the work you'll eventually do. And that major's conversation is outdated as well. I keep like spewing book stats, but I read a lot. Um, there's a book <laughs> called Designing <laughs> Your Life, which everyone should read. But these two professors at Stanford wrote about the fact that only a third of Americans actually work in the major that they graduated from. A third. A third. Wow. So I no longer ask students, what do you want to major in? I say, what are the problems in the world you want to solve? And then question. you start oh, to think question. about great how question. you do that. Um, because I deal with parents all the time who are freaking out about the English and the philosophy and the theater majors, who, by the way, do very well for themselves, like <laughs> Stephanie. <laughs> I do sometimes worry that this stat about half the jobs that you may pursue aren't created yet over-sensationalizes the fact that half the jobs you could go for are out there and you just have no idea you're going to wind up at them. And they've been around forever. I mean, none of us went through college thinking, and then, uh, then when I work in admissions someday, I'll be doing this. And the job was there. So I think there's plenty of us that go into paths that have been there all along. We just didn't realize they were for us yet. But even within those pathways, there will likely be changes, new developments, well, new technologies. Well, I mean, we've all experienced that, right? Yep. We've, yeah. What we do and how we do it has changed dramatically. Agreed. Young people will have to adapt even within those longstanding careers to changes that inevitably will affect them. Give me your a prognostication for the next decade in college admission. Be bold. I think the profession, this is not necessarily from a student perspective, but for folks like Stephanie, Jim, and I who do this work every day, there will be challenges because we're about to face a demographic cliff in 2026. There will be significantly fewer high school age students um, to go around. And so I think that we will be thinking about our own models on our college campuses, also maybe rethinking who we serve, whether or not maybe we need to be increasing those quote-unquote non-traditional students, creating new kinds of partnerships and pipelines. So I think you can think about it two ways. You could say it's the most exciting time to be in the profession or it will be one of the scariest times to be in the profession. We've had the WICHE, it's an organization, if you aren't familiar with it, the WICHE reports for years about the birth rates leading to certain numbers of high school graduates. But I think the work we're getting from Nathan Graw out of Carleton now that really examines if students keep wanting the kinds of college experiences that they're getting at the same rates and based on the subsets of, of those populations and those age ranges. It seems like over these next 10, 18 years, we're going to have some really big shifts in which kinds of colleges attract which kinds of the students who are still in that pipeline. Um, and so I, I think for a lot of us, the truth is, and again, this is some brutal stuff, we've got some small very enrollment-dependent campuses that are going to continue to close over these next 10 to 18 years. I just don't see any way around that accelerating at least a little bit, if not a lot. It's going to be interesting to see how many students go for the multiple schools route in the community college system. Like, there could be some good stories that come out of this in terms of students considering more paths. Uh, the cost itself is going to really get in our way. I'll be fascinated to see if what seems like it might be the most serious momentum yet about going away from standardized tests picks up more speed and the notion of fewer schools making less use of that piece of information to define who's a good fit for their campus 
And we also have to get through the politics. I mean, there is a very big anti-higher education rhetoric in this administration right now. And so we are feeling that. And we're also feeling that abroad. I mean, many of us have a fair number of international students on our campus. And when I've traveled abroad more recently, it's no longer a question about, should I attend your institution? Now we start with the question of, why should I study in the United States? And so we have some really deep challenges that we're dealing with right now, politically as well. I think the demographic trends that that study support are challenging enough. But to Jim's point about cost, that's what keeps me up at night. When I look at the cost of my institution and other institutions for which I've worked, the cost that I will be paying for my son to go to college and my daughter following in two years, and I think about families who are having sleepless nights considering those own issues. If we keep going on this trajectory, we already have and we will continue to outpace what the public is able and indeed willing to pay. And we are going to collectively, I think, have to address the college cost issue in the next 10 years. Wow. This has been eye-opening. Jim, Angel, Stephanie, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jalika, for moderating today. And and I'll add my thanks, Angel and Jim, for being here and for your insights. And, and thanks to you all for listening to us today. College Admissions Decoded is a podcast from NACAC, the National Association for College Admission Counseling. It is produced by Lentigua Williams and Co. Paul Amardo is our sound designer. Emma Forbes is the show's intern. If you would like to learn more about our guests, our organization, and the college admission process, visit NACAC's website at www.nacacnet.org. I'm Stephanie Niles. It's been a pleasure being with you today.